we thank you for the time you've given us today to be together for fellowship for worship for bonding for brotherly and sisterly love in Christ Lord many of us have gone through many trials this week many of us are facing physical ailments Lord and uh, difficulties in our life Lord and challenges within and just we just praise you Lord for giving us the strength to get through it and some of us are still challenged through that period but we know that we have you as our ultimate comfort and our God our King our priest our prophet and we know that you will never abandon us Lord as you have promised in your word and today I just pray that I will be able to glorify you in this lesson today on forgiveness Lord just pray this in your son's name amen all right would you please open your Bible and turn to the book of Luke today's scripture reading can be found in chapter 23 verses 26 through 43 So as a, as a form of worship and respect for our Lord, I'm just going to ask everyone if they would please kindly stand, if, you, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 23, verse 26 through 43. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, 
truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You may be seated. This is God's word. We are now hours away from the death of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. This was after he was arrested, betrayed by his disciples, participated in a mock trial, and found guilty of crimes he did not commit, and sentenced to be executed by one of the cruelest forms of execution. Jesus was severely scourged, whipped, and flogged, and abused as required by Roman law as part of his punishment. The flogging was intended to serve two primary purposes, to inflict severe pain and to purposely weaken the victim by trauma and loss of blood so it wouldn't take long to die on the cross. In fact, our master was already suffering so much that he needed assistance from others to even carry the cross. According to one article dated March 15, 2015 by Northern Seminary, I quote, Jesus was brutally scourged. His hands were tied to a post. Whips designed to rip into flesh were brought out. The whips had leather thongs into which small metal balls or sharp edges of sheep bones had been tied. At his back, his buttocks and his thighs were whipped. Layer after layer of flesh was torn off right down to the skeletal muscles. Many victims of scourging died tied to the post. The fact that Simon was needed to carry the cross for Jesus is evidence how much Jesus suffered even before the cross. So we can imagine the severe suffering that has been endured by our master. All the meanwhile, the people, the soldiers, and even the rulers hurled insults at him. Even followers who at one time believed him to be the Messiah now were seriously disappointed. He had performed all the previous miracles and even raised the dead. And now it appeared he can't even save himself and looked powerless as he hung on the cross. This is less than a week ago when he entered Jerusalem on a cult and was welcomed and celebrated as a king. This is a day after he participated in the Last Supper when his disciples and was betrayed by one of them who sold him out for a mere 30 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to approximately $250 today. This is after all the disciples who he would have considered the closest friends all abandoned him. Worse off, our mighty God eventually abandoned him when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 46, famous quote we all know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While on the cross, the entire world's sin had been placed onto him, and for him alone to bear the mental and physical torment prior to being executed. However, in verse 27, it states there were some women in the crowd that were mourning and wailing for him. Jesus pauses to show compassion, but responds by prophesying that a lot of dangers lay ahead. He was saying that the weeping should be reserved for Jerusalem and its inhabitants, referring to the entire nation of Israel. Since judgment was going to fall on the city, you see, Jesus knew that in about 40 years, Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed by the Romans. In fact, after a long siege, the Roman armies overcame the defenses of the city and razed most of it to the ground. With great brutality, they killed almost every man, woman, and child. The Jewish Roman historian Josephus estimated that over a million people died 
the majority of whom were Jewish. No one was spared, and some reported that the Roman legions had to climb over heaps of dead bodies to continue their work of killing everyone in the city. Jesus uses the analogy that when the dry trees of the forest are on fire, it would spread across those hills far faster than anyone could run. To be in the path of fire racing through dry wood was certainly to die. His point was that the inhabitants are going to wish they hadn't been born, since judgment is going to be severe. Yet, in the midst of all this, something <coughs> profound happens. Jesus says in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Astounding. Rather than resent the men who tortured and crucified him, he had compassion on them. What had Jesus previously taught Peter when he asked how often we should forgive others who offend us? We have the answer in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. And I quote, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times 7 times. The point is the same. Jesus is saying to be ready to forgive over and over past counting. Luke chapter 17, verse 3 through 4, is phrased not as a request or suggestion by Jesus, rather an imperative. It says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The lack of forgiveness is the foundation of destroying all relationships. Let me say it one more time. The lack of forgiveness is the foundation of destroying all relationships. It is an ultimate form of pride in us that does not allow us to forgive. Moreover, it is an extreme insult and offense to God when you do not forgive. To think we are wiser and more knowledgeable than God himself and have the audacity to withhold forgiveness after what the Lord has done for us is intellectual arrogance. But what is biblical forgiveness? We should mention what it is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting, excusing, dismissing, pardoning, permitting, or even guaranteeing reconciliation with the offender of the sin committed. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It does not mean deep hurts can be easily wiped out of one's awareness. Forgiveness is not excusing. It does not excuse or condone bad, inappropriate, or hurtful behavior. Forgiveness is not dismissing. It is not viewing an offense as inconsequential or insignificant. Forgiveness is not pardoning. It is not the release of any consequences from the sin. Forgiveness is not permitting. It does not mean permitting repetition of the same sinful act against you. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It does not guarantee reconciliation with the offender. Forgiveness is not painless. It does not mean it causes no pain or suffering or the cessation of justice sought for the offense. And forgiveness is not a feeling. 
It is rather an act of obedience to God stemming from gratitude for his grace. What then is biblical forgiveness? The Greek word for forgiveness is aphemi and implies letting go or to release. Another Greek word for forgiveness is sharazomai, which means the gift free and unconditional forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness can be defined as a letting go of sin and release an offender or offenders from the wrong they committed against you without reservation. I'll repeat it again. Biblical forgiveness can be defined as a letting go of sin and to release an offender or offenders from the wrong they committed against you without reservation. This includes forgiving everyone, every time, of everything, as an act of obedience and gratefulness to God because of who he is and what he has done for you, including forgiving you and me for our trespasses against him. It is a truly a spiritual gift given to you by God. When you forgive someone, that, my friend, should also be credited to God and glorifies him by demonstrating that he is more satisfying for our soul than to seek revenge. When you don't forgive, you are trapped and focused somewhat in the past. You may be preoccupied with thoughts of retaliation or revenge. Worse, the increased feeling of bitterness, anger, and resentment slowly start to spread into your heart like cancer. And if it is not controlled, it can lead to devastating consequences to you, your personal relationships, and the world and your relationship with God. To illustrate further, well, I took the liberty to quote some metaphors of forgiveness from some of them from Pastor John MacArthur. To forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, and let the prisoner walk free. To forgive is to write in large letters across the debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in the courtroom and declare, not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high, so far, it can never be found again. To forgive is to take advantage or take out the garbage, excuse me, and dispose of it, leaving the house full of cleanliness and sweet-smelling fresh air. To forgive is to loose the anchor that holds the ship and set it free to sail. To forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned and sentenced criminal. To forgive is to loosen a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti leaving it looking brand new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be put together again. Beloved, how do you respond when you've been offended, insulted, or sinned against? When someone offends you, mocks you, makes fun of you, hurts you, how do you respond? When a close friend, classmate, brother or sister, a parent, acquaintance, stranger, even a political or religious system, in fact, offends you, how do you respond? With disappointment, frustration, anger, resentment, vengeance, temptation? How about complaining? Or do you ask the Lord to give you the strength and ability to have compassion on your offender and even pray for it and forgive them, along with treating them with their utter kindness. Well, according to Jesus, we are commanded to forgive like our fathers had forgiven us. 
There was an incident many years ago that I can still vividly remember to this day. The event occurred in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. An article in their local newspaper wrote the following. It was October 2nd, 2006, before many of you were born. It was a typical fall day. Birds could be heard in the distance and little else except maybe the clip-clop of horse hooves and the rattling of buggy heading down a backcountry road. It's normally quiet and peaceful in the rolling Amish farmlands, farmlands of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. But that peace was shattered when the sound of gunfire was heard from inside the Amish school. When local police broke into the Amish one-room schoolhouse, they found 10 Amish girls, ages 6 through 13, had been shot by Charles Carl Roberts IV, who had then committed suicide. Charlie Roberts was a milk truck driver who served the local community, including the farms of some of the victims' families. Nine years earlier, his wife Amy gave birth to their first child, a baby girl. However, the baby died after living only 20 minutes. Apparently, his daughter's death affected him greatly. He never forgave God for her death and eventually planned to get revenge. On the morning of October 2nd, Robert said goodbye to two of his own children at the school bus stop then drove to the West Nickel Mines Amish School. When he walked in the door, some of the children recognized him. That day, the school had four adult visitors, the teacher's mother, her sister, and two sisters-in-law. One of the women was pregnant. When the young teacher saw his guns, she and her mother left the other adults with the children and ran to a nearby house, house for help. A call was made to 911. The pregnant visitor was trying to comfort seven-year-old Naomi Rose when Roberts ordered the adults to leave. Then he told the boys to leave. The boys huddled near an outhouse to pray. Roberts had the 10 girls lie down facing the blackboard and he tied their hands and feet. Roberts told the girls he was very sorry for what he was about to do and said, I'm angry at God and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. When the state police arrived, Roberts ordered them to leave the property or he would shoot. He told the girls, I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. One of the girls, 13-year-old Marion, said, shoot me first. Roberts began shooting each of them, each of the girls before finally shooting himself. When the police broke into the school, two of the girls, including Marion, were dead. Naomi Rose died in the arms of a state trooper. The two sisters died later that night in two different area hospitals. Amish parents tried to console themselves by saying the five girls who had died were safe in the arms of Jesus. However, in the hours and days following the shooting, an unexpected story developed. In the midst of their grief over the shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in sorrow and pain. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. And what is even more amazing is that the Amish mourners outnumber the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral. 
Donors from around the world pledged money to help the families of the dead and wounded. And yet, at the behest of Amish leaders, a fund had been set up for the killer's widow and three kids. Although we don't necessarily agree with all the doctrines of the Amish faith, one thing can be said with certainty. As a result of God's common grace and love, the Amish community demonstrated impeccably what biblical forgiveness is about. In our passage, Jesus was able to have compassion and forgive his offenders while in the midst of tremendous suffering. Are you able to do the same? Is God's grace sufficient for you? Is his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of all your sins meaningful? Does it move you and touch you to see that you have also been forgiven by the Almighty God? This transitions to our next illustration in point to this passage. What if instead of being the one offended, you have offended and sinned against another, particularly our holy, loving, perfect, steadfast love and compassionate God? Ladies and gentlemen of the courtroom, you and I are here today on trial for the trespassing and violation of the law of God. God has reviewed each of our cases, looked into each of our hearts, read each of our minds, and reviewed the alleged crimes each of us have committed, secretly or publicly, thought and deed, particularly for not abiding and obeying all of his holy laws. The verdict as read, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, you all know this by now. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. By the power and rights and legal authority of Scripture and our holy Jehovah, God has found each of us guilty of the crimes against our Savior. For the wages of sin is death. As such, we are hereby sentenced to eternal life of damnation and separation from God forever, apart from Christ. Damnation includes a physical and spiritual death to be had. There's a physical death, which is the separation of the flesh and bone and body from the soul. And a spiritual death, which is our soul separated from God, which occurred as a consequence from the original sin of Adam and Eve. You guys all know C.S. Lewis. He described hell as, quote, to be forever cut off from God's presence, eternally unable to know God's love and mercy, would be torture best described by being burned ceaselessly by fire. Our only hope and advocate for being saved from eternal damnation at this point in the courtroom of God is utter faith, dependence, and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. We further see a similar experience in our passage whereby Jesus was being crucified with a criminal on his left and another on his right. But each criminal had a radically different response. Let's analyze this further. Both men were convicted under the same legal system. Both men were sinners and guilty of their crimes, including opposition of Jesus and blasphemy by mocking, scolding, and finding fault with Jesus' ministry, as stated in Mark chapter 15, verse 32, where it says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Well, we know what revile means, right? To revile is to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner, not to mention what was done to our precious Lord. Both men had the same sentence for punishment, death by crucifixion. Both men were the beckoning, at the beckoning mercy of the crowd. Both men were focused on Jesus. 
but that is where the major similarities cease. The first thief continues the blasphemy against Jesus by saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other thief, having heard the first thief, had a conversion of the heart by our Lord and Savior. At that moment, God quickened his heart and he became a believer by faith through grace, God's grace and saw Jesus for who and what he was, fully and truly human, fully and truly God. He realized that Jesus was completely innocent of any wrongdoing, and he had the attitude of humility, mentioning that both of them, the thieves, did commit crimes that deserved the punishment they were getting, but not Jesus. He goes on to say that this man, Jesus, has done nothing, <coughs> done anything wrong, and nothing wrong was being unjustly punished. He even confesses that Jesus is God. So here you have a new believer that recognizes his own sinful nature and rightful condemnation from God and rightly deserves his punishment, and yet also recognizes his only savior is this innocent man next to him about to die, who everyone is mocking and calling the king of the Jews. He says to the unrepentant thief, and then to Jesus, this is amazing. He says, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But what does Jesus say? Astoundingly, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. On a side note, this is one of my favorite verses to illustrate that believers who die without the opportunity of being baptized can be saved. On the contrary, Roman Catholicism has a doctrine that teaches that baptism is required for salvation. This is not to undermine the symbolism and importance of the two sacraments the Lord instituted, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. But salvation only comes through faith in Christ, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9 states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift, a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In July 1998, over 24 years ago, my father was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Stage four cancer basically means that the cancer has spread to the organs and parts of the body. The doctor gave him three to six months to live. I remember the extreme emotional and physical difficulty our family was going through at the time. Dad, Dad and I tried to spend as much time together as possible. At the time, my brother and I were living in New York City, and we flew back and forth to and from New York City in Ohio almost every weekend to see him. I remember clearly that I spent a good amount of time debating with Dad about the existence of God. We would get into long, extensive debates and discussions about the gospel. Dad would meet me halfway and say that he believed in intelligent design, but not necessarily the Bible. As much as I tried to convince him, I realized my efforts proved ineffective. Over the years, his cancer got worse, and it got to a point when he was bedridden. His body was decaying slowly, and now to a point that I have experienced and know what cancer patients look like near the end of their lives. Skinny to the skeletal bones, looking famished, sick, with no hope of recovering, barring a miracle from God. There was a couple specific moments which really had me mesmerized, or I should say a rude awakening. One instance was when he was in bed, in his bed cover, staring at the ceiling, looking frightening and frightened and trying to hide under the covers. 
He had his hands on top of the sheets, and his eyes were staring in fright, looking back and forth at the ceiling. None of us saw anything in the room or on the ceiling, and we were not sure what he was looking at. He said he kept seeing darkness along with figures moving around in the air, and I told him I didn't see a thing. Then that episode passed, and weeks later, something similar happened. Only this time, he described it as a figure dressed in white coming towards him, as well as other figures in white. The description was vague, and at this stage, my father could barely talk. Again, my brother and I saw and heard nothing, but his eyes were fixated and staring at the ceiling. He said in a somewhat incoherent speech while staring at the ceiling, not yet, I'm not ready yet to go. I need a little more time. Well, weeks passed, and it was close to November 1999 now or so, almost a year and a half since his cancer diagnosis, and he was no longer able to speak at this point. The family continued to pray for his salvation each day. The pastor from, my church, from the church my mom attended, thankfully she was a believer, would come and visit weekly and minister the gospel to dad. On one occasion, as my brother and I were arriving to Ohio airport on a weekly trip, when we arrived home, my third aunt, who was a believer, was telling us of an event that we recently missed. We both missed it. At my dad's bedside, a few hours prior to our arrival in Ohio, the pastor had asked my dad if he would accept the Lord as his savior. The pastor knew my father was unable to speak at this point, but they needed a form of communication. The pastor held my dad's hand and told my dad that if he accepted Jesus as his savior, just squeeze his hand twice. My aunt continued to tell the story and said there was a long moment of silence like the time had stopped. Moments later, my dad squeezed the pastor's hand twice, and everyone who witnessed it in the room were in relief and joy, with tears running down my mother's eyes. God had finally regenerated my dad's heart to becoming a Christian. See, dad never had the opportunity of being baptized or partaking in communion after becoming a Christian. But the passage we read above really confirms that my father is with Christ today. The Lord does not have limit limited reach to save the one who repents the very last moment. In the midst of overwhelming unbelief, we see a newfound faith. The repentant thief on the cross, as well as my dad, who became a believer on the nth hour, were granted and rewarded with assurance from Christ and ultimately life in paradise. There may come a moment in time in your life when you realize you are near death as death awaits you, and you may experience a similar situation and ask yourself the ultimate, most important question you will ever ask yourself. Do I accept Jesus to be my savior and hero and through faith believe and trust that he bore all of God's terrible wrath and paid the penalty by dying on the cross to atone for my past, present, and future sins for an unworthy sinner, wretched man or woman that I am? Which thief are you? Yes, you and I, apart from Christ, are convicted thieves to be sentenced to eternal damnation, or more dire terminology, hell. But again, which thief are you? The one that will be eternally separated from God, or the one who will spend eternity with our beautiful Savior, Christ Jesus, who loves us so much? I will never forget a quote from one of my former pastors who said, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Do you really believe that? 
Do you really believe that your sins can be rooted so deeply that you are capable of committing the most heinous crimes and offenses if driven to that extreme? If not, you are in complete denial of reality and do not have a genuine understanding of the power and potential of sin. If If you do believe that, do you believe that you are more loved and accepted just the way you are? Do you believe all your sins have been forgiven when you accept Jesus as your Savior through faith? God created you as a unique, special person and looks to you like one of his sheep. You know, sheep are really stupid animals and vulnerable to being hurt and preyed upon. Yet, do you believe that you are so valuable and loved by God that even the shepherd, capital S, will do whatever it takes to save one lost sheep? In fact, our true shepherd, Jesus Christ, would even go to the length of suffering and dying on the cross to save us whereby he was separated and abandoned by God. Remember that? Now that is a sign of a true shepherd. That, my friend, is true biblical love that came with a precious monumental cost to God's only beloved son. Is this thinking planted solidly in your heart? That is the true way for the Spirit to convict you and offer you the ability and strength to forgive others no matter what. I encourage Christians here today if there's any of you that have not forgiven your fellow brothers and sisters, as well as outside God's universal church, to do so as soon as possible. The time is short at hand. For those of you here that are seekers and not sure about this Jesus figure, there's still time. I encourage you to pray and ask God to open your hearts and minds and adopt you into his family of sheep. For there is no better and magnificent gift than eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But with the power of the Spirit, you will be able to forgive others as our Lord Jesus forgave you. Also, you will know that God has no limit to who he reaches for eternal salvation. Yes, it's free for you and and mine for the taking, but it cost him dearly. It's beloved son. So today's effort, I wanted to bring out two important points in closing being able to forgive in the midst of suffering, and that God has no boundaries or limits to save anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your time, and may God bless each and every one of you.